When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the College Hoops Daily Podcast, presented by Betfred Sports. I am your host. My name is Zach Kroll, and this is the show where we talk all things college basketball now until the Final Four. The road will end there in Atlanta, and we have another very special episode with you guys today. It's Wednesday, so you know what that means. Former D1 basketball coach Jamie and Christian will be joining me here today, and we're going to get into it all. We're going to get into some teams that we think might be national championship good, or maybe might not be national championship good, that some other people would consider to be in that category. It's already late January, and we don't really know who exactly are legitimate national championship contenders, which is not something we say often as college basketball fans. We'll also get into teams we're buying selling right now. We'll also get into some of the action from the last few nights of college basketball. But Coach Christian, I wanted to say thank you so much for joining us here today on the College Hoops Daily Podcast. What's going on, my man? Always a pleasure. I mean, this thing's really proven as the year goes on to have no definite team. So it's going to be a great finishing, finishing few months of college basketball. Absolutely. And let's get into it right from there, right? You have all of these teams, right? Number one team in the country, Houston, they lose on Sunday for only the second time this season in pretty surprising fashion. They lose to Temple, uh, an Owls team that was expecting some big things going into the season, but they haven't necessarily lived up to that hype. But they do pick up a monster road victory at Houston. We have Purdue. They're sitting right now as the number one overall team at 19-1. and one. They've only lost one game. It came a couple weeks ago at home to Rutgers, Alabama. They're continuing to play very good and very consistent basketball. Probably the most consistent team in the country, but you know with the SEC schedule, the Big 12 SEC Challenge coming up this weekend, actually, Alabama is going to face some pretty big challenges coming up uh, as well. So, Coach Chris, my first question for you is when you look at the overall landscape of college basketball, when you look at the teams that might have a legitimate shot to cut down the nets in March, what stands out to you and how many teams right now, when you watch them, could you realistically say, like, okay, I could see these guys eventually uh, winning a national championship and cutting down the nets in March? Yeah, it's definitely going to be one of those years where when you get in the NCAA tournament, it's going to become all about matchups, uh, even more so. Because, you know, there's really no team that you look out there and say they're just so dominant. And that's some of that is just because of the inexperience of every team right now, you know, like. When you look at like a Tennessee, the reason they're so successful and they've been so good is because they have some. They're they're one of the most experienced teams in the nation. The same thing with Houston, they just have great experience almost throughout that roster, and so you're seeing how like last few years of college basketball and some of the you know some of the things with the changes with the transfer portal have really affected the game and how consistently teams are going to be able to play. And we talk about consistency, you know, being at a place and playing on the road at a certain place over time gives you the ability to go in and, and really have an opportunity to win. So that's how a team like like that's how a team like Houston can go in a temple, a place where many of those guys maybe haven't been before and they've got a chance to play there. That's how those kind of matchups can kind of happen. Um, but early on, 
I really like Zach, Zach, Eddie and Purdue. Um, just watching them. They're so physical. Um, they have a dominant player that is going to be really tough to stop. His minutes have gone up throughout the year. So you have to contend for him every single time down the floor. And there's no bigs in college basketball that can, that can handle him one-on-one in the post. So it's just really, they're a really tough team to, to play against right now. Yeah, and I think it's interesting with Purdue, too. They had a ton of talent last year, right? An NBA lottery top three pick in Jaden Ivey. They had another NBA quality big man in Trevion Williams. And I think sometimes Matt Painter had a little bit of trouble choosing which big man to go to at certain times. When you have two dominant bigs on your roster like that, sometimes it could be tough. But this year, Edie has left no doubts. He is the pretty clear front runner right now uh, for National Player of the Year. And I think also... The thing that's so interesting about Purdue is they're starting two three-star freshmen, guys that even the biggest college basketball fans before the season might not have even ever heard of in uh, Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer. And even in a tough league like the Big Ten, we talk about this a lot, like just how many quality teams there are in that league and how hard it really is to separate it. Purdue, Purdue just continues to collect wins and their only loss not only in conference, but overall came at home to a really good Rutgers team that's also towards uh, the top of the Big Ten. But do you think this Purdue team could be different compared to other Purdue teams of the of years past that have had trouble advancing in the NCAA tournament? Because last year, you look at their roster, you look at everything that went down. This was a team that was number one in the country for a while last year. But something was just off when you watch them, especially uh, after January, like in the later months of the season, they didn't always look like the team we saw at times earlier in the season. And they had a golden opportunity uh, to play St. Peter's in the Sweet 16. They win that game. They go north against North Carolina in the Elite Eight. And Purdue could have easily ended up in the Final Four. Matt Painter has made the Elite Eight before. We remember, of course, a few years ago, just a heartbreaking ending against Virginia. What makes this Purdue team different right now compared to years past that might just be able to finally get them over the hump. Well, it's interesting you talk about last year's team because the amount of talent that they had on last year's team was immense. Um, this team is as, is just as talented, but it's different. You know, they don't have a lottery pick point guard who's super fast, right? I mean, if you think about it, like Williams and 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 Edie on the inside with a point guard who gets out in transition and, and Ivy and how fast he plays, what a contradiction of playing style, right? Um and, and, and it's just a contradiction because Ivy's so good and so electric in transition. But when you have two bigs that, that have to take time to get down the floor, and it, it's just a really hard thing as a coach, I think, to put that all together. And so, first of all, I think the, the run they're able to get on with, that, with those contradictions, I think, are pretty, pretty interesting. This team matches better for how they play. You know, Braden Smith, Lawyer, they're outside shooters. They're not getting to the front of the rim as much. They're outside shooters and passers and, you know, and so it really, they play at a tempo where it fits how they want to play. They can throw the ball inside as much as possible, make him a threat every single time down the floor. You know, they're not beating him down the floor. It just makes a lot of sense. The other thing is when you have a guy like Ivy and Williams, those guys play a little bit faster where your transition defense is different. Uh, suddenly like he might take a layup and Ivy might take a layup in transition. If he misses it, now you've got, now you got Eddie reaching one, uh, Jack, Eddie, one point side of the floor and having to get back to the other that's really hard to do if you're over seven feet tall. You're not seeing that with this year's Purdue team. Their turnovers are predictable turnovers. They don't turn the ball over very much. They have a direct person that they're playing through. So there's a hierarchy um, of how you're going to play. 
that helps everybody settle into a rotation. That helps everybody settle into spots. That puts everybody in the same positions, game in and game out, where they're seeing these same situations over and over again. That allows the freshmen, Lawyer and Smith, to really be able to settle in and be able to make consistent plays every single game because they're not seeing things that are different. Um, so this team is a better team in the way that they just really – the pieces all fit together. Yeah, I definitely see what you're saying there. And I think it's evident when you watch them, things just seem a little bit more easier, which might be a little crazy considering, again, the amount of talent they had last year, NBA talent. But I definitely agree. When you watch this Purdue team this year compared to last year, it does seem a little bit more natural and easier for them to get the sh the shots they wanted. But um, we mentioned Houston to start, right? And that game was actually at home that they lost to Temple. That was part of what, what made it so surprising. And it's interesting because... Kelvin Sampson, I consider him to be one of the best coaches in the country. He's done such a great job with this Houston program. The last two years, this uh, program has been to the Final Four and to the Elite Eight, and their expectations are going to be to get back there this season. And that's definitely a possibility based on a very good coach in Sampson. They have a lot of talent. Marcus Sasser, he's back healthy after missing the second half, really more of last season uh, with a season-ending injury. But I don't want to say kind of like Purdue last year, but when I watch this Houston team, our expectations are obviously very high. But when you watch them, something feels a little bit off. Even in the games they're winning, and I understand like it's conference play, there is no such thing as an easy game, especially on the road in conference play. And especially when you're a team like Houston playing in the American, the rest of the conference knows that you're one of the premier teams in the country and they're always going to give you their best shot. But Houston loses this game uh, at home to Temple by one when Temple didn't even score a field goal in the final six minutes of the game. Houston has also had some uh, close calls uh, against UCF. They're actually playing them again tonight in Orlando. That should be a good one. But they've had some other close calls in American Conference play against South Florida, obviously the Temple game last night. So, Coach Kristen, when you look at this Houston team, my first question would be, like, when you're in that position, right, as the clear top team in the conference that every that – whenever you play in any opponent, they, you know, they're going to give you their best effort and their best fight. And also when you're, when you have that high expectations, but your league isn't really up to the same par, we've seen this a little bit with Gonzaga. How do you coach your team through that? Like, what is the message to send to them? And when you watch this Houston team, is there anything specific that stands out to you? Well, when I watch Houston, uh, you know, and with Kelvin Sampson starts with their level of physicality. Um, you know, they're going to, there's not a matching their level of physicality, the way they offensive rebound, the way they defensive rebound, you've got to be a physically strong team, a physically disciplined team to play them. Um, you know, winning it is hard. Um, being that dominant over a full season is really difficult. Um, Kelvin Sampson knows how to navigate that, but there are times in the year where you just have a bad game and you just sort of to hope that when you have the bad game that you're good enough on that day to find a way to win it um, on that day like you said Temple didn't score in the last last several minutes of the game and it was just sort of their day and that can happen you know and and I think that's what's challenging and you know it's really hard to be a dominant team like you know when you think about Gonzaga you know even in their league they have a lot of close games at, with certain teams every single year that have been recruiting to a certain standard over and over again so it's in general, it's just hard to be that dominant over and over again. It's hard to get the guys up every single game to be just, you know, you got to be at your best tonight. You got to be at your best. 
those mantras kind of run run stale at this point in the year. You know, you think about it, beginning of the year, everyone's really excited. Everyone's fired up. They're moving in one direction. At the end of the year, you kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. Everybody's really pushing forward because you can see that light. It's in the middle that's the most dangerous. In the middle is where it's just darkness all around you. Um, you know, see a lot of times you come out of practice, you don't you don't remember the last time you saw the, the, the light of day that you're coming in so early and you're leaving so late. Then this is the time of year where those things can sort of happen. Uh, I think Houston's a great team. I think they're going to be really tough to play against. I think their matchups matter um, because they can go on some scoring droughts. And that's something that has happened to their team over the years. And this team is no different than that. But their physicality is where they lay their hat on. And that gives them opportunities to be able to get through some of those droughts. I'm sure Kelvin Sampson is going to use this opportunity to say, you can lose. You can be beaten. And I think those are really important when you have a dominant team. Absolutely. And we've seen so many times in recent years, like sometimes a loss is the best thing for a team that is in a position like Houston that is so used to rattling off wins, especially in conference play. And I know a lot of coaches will say this sometimes, but these losses are really lessons. Like they give you an opportunity to really figure out, okay, what exactly do we need to do better and how do we attack this? Uh, But you mentioned uh, for the second time today matchups and how important they're going to be in the NCAA tournament. Why is that? Is it just as simple as, okay, our team does something really well or we notice something that the other team doesn't really do well or that great and we could attack it right then and there? Like, I feel like a lot of people realize, like, okay, matchups are important and if you get a favorable path, you could have success in the NCAA tournament based on that. But from a coach's perspective, like what exactly makes having the right matchup for your team so important when you get into a tournament setting? Yeah. Let's take this, for example, you know, that was my, my last year at Mount St. Mary's. Um, I would like to say that I predicted this, but I didn't predict this. And we were kind of going through the year. We we're playing really well. Um, we were first or second in our league and, you know, kind of in our, our player group chat, the guy said, you know, if we make the NCAA tournament, where do you think we're going to play? And I said, I think we're going to play Virginia in Pittsburgh. And I said, and we want that matchup. And so we kind of had this conversation. Well, why would you want to play Virginia? No one wants to play Virginia. And at the time, Virginia was playing basically two bigs. Um, you know, they were playing two bigs. They hard hedge, right? So they end up that year losing to UMBC in the first round. And it's, they play two bigs. They hard hedge. UMBC plays four guards. And they can really get downhill and attack. So with the two bigs hard hedging, it means the rim's going to be open if you can advance the ball. It means the pick and pop opportunities are going to be open. If you, have a, if you have a big that can stretch it a little bit, we had a really good stretch big that year. Um, and if you run pick and pop stuff in the dribble handoffs, that big is going to be late behind it, and you're going to be forced to guard that. So, we will, you know, UMBC got the win because they play so fast, right? Remember, the bigger you are, usually the slower you play. So, um, so these matchups, these like little things that people don't always notice become really important. And there are certain teams that always give – you know, an opponent, uh, a tough matchup. When you look at Duke and Florida State, for example, even when Florida State isn't great or when Florida State is great, they always go in and seem to find a way to beat Duke. Well, it's because Duke really pressures out on the floor and they get really extended. And Florida State is great at driving the ball to space, being able to finish in the rim. Florida State's one of the few teams in the ACC that can really handle Duke's pressure in the half court and then make them and punish them at the rim. Duke rarely has, unlike this year with Derek Lively, they rarely have a shot blocker back there. So if you can get past the front line of defense, you got a great opportunity to score. That's why these matchups become really important. And that's why certain teams just play better against other teams. And, and so that's why I always talk about matchups, matchup, matchups, because if you're a team that's really, really set on playing two bigs like Arizona or, or UConn, 
Well, there are certain teams that can that can drive, and we say get to your feet. Right? If you got a little guard that can get to the big's feet, he's going to beat them. If you're even, he's beat. Those kind of matchups will give them a lot. Will give them a lot. Give them trouble. Now on the other end, they'll try to throw the ball inside, be physical, and that's just the matchup that you got to win. And those kind of matchups will determine the game. Yeah, I think that's super fascinating because there are some teams that when they get a certain matchup like that, even though on paper it might not be favorable, that's what the real good coaches do. They are able to find that weakness or just that point that they're able to attack and really take advantage of. And that's a great example right there of what you used uh, back to your time at uh, the Mount. But another team I wanted to get to quickly is TCU. And I know based on the rankings, they aren't a top five team just yet, but the more and more I watch them, they're starting to play like it. And they had a monster win yesterday at home over a very good Oklahoma team that's competing for an NCAA tournament berth. We all know just how tough of a league the Big 12 is. TCU takes this game 79 to 52. And it's important to remember as well, this is fresh off their big win at Allen Fieldhouse for the first time ever on Saturday. TCU was able to go into Kansas, into the fog and win that game. And Coach, every time I watch this TCU team, I'm more and more impressed. They do have a clear weakness, uh, three-point shooting. It's not their strong suit, but I just love how they're able to attack in some other ways, whether it's on the offensive glass, whether it's in transition, and that's how they attack teams. That's what makes them so hard to play against. And with the dynamic backcourt of Miles and Ball, it's really impressive. And again, the Big 12 is such a good league, and I think right now the team to beat in this league is TCU. And I'm starting to think, man, like this team might just be a legitimate national championship contender. And shout out to our guy, Aaron Torres, who did pick TCU in the preseason to go all the way to the Final Four. <laughs> you know, TCU is so interesting. Um, you know, we kind of go about it in our group chats. You know, we're talking about, you know, Mike Miles Jr. And, and some of these guys. They're a really interesting team because I would say their three-point shooting might be their weakness. But I, I wouldn't want to leave these guys open to shoot the ball. <laughs> Right. I mean, it they definitely feel like I would call these guys. I, I would just call it to these guys are hoopers. You know, if you give them an open shot, they're going to make it. If you if you give them a drive, they're going to take it. If you give them a tough, a easy pass, they're going to drop it off. Like when you show up to play TCU, you got to play and you've got to be ready to play with two way defenders, two way offensive guys. You're going to have to do a lot of different things because their guards are offensive rebound. Some their guards are get out in transition Their Their bigs will get out and make some plays. They're a really tough team to play against um, because they really do play the right way. Um, it's an interesting mix because, you know, we obviously know, you know, how they've played in the past. And this is this is different. This team has major pop. And if you're not ready to play, they can go on a 15 to 16 0 run on you quickly. I don't know if Jamie Dixon's had this kind of pop in a long time. Um, you know, his pitch teams were like rugged and you know, really physical. This team has that physicality, but they're different with their level of pop. That's why I think they're a really dangerous team. I want to watch more of them, um, but they're dangerous because their their spurt ability is electric, and it is one of the best in the country. Absolutely, and this might be Jamie Dixon's best chance to get to a Final Four. He had a lot of really good teams at Pitt, but I agree. The offensive scoring pop this team has, and really, like, they could just go on a run – at any time it's extremely noticeable and again the score last last night 79 52 watching a little bit of that game it never even felt that close in Oklahoma and Porter Mosier like that's a really good and tough team and especially being able to follow the Kansas game like 
you've been in that position, I'm sure, many times before where your team just had a big win. Maybe it's on the road uh, and you're coming back home. And I know Oklahoma is solid, but, you know, the, the magnitude of those two games aren't necessarily equal. And the fact that TC was able to follow that up at home, no letdown at all. That's a sign of a really good team. Like when you're able to win on the road, uh, against Kansas, especially at a place that's so hard to win, like Allen Fieldhouse, and you're able to follow that up with a no doubt home victory over a solid Oklahoma team. That's cons- consistency, and I'm really impressed uh, by TCU in that way. Yeah, the maturity to handle the emotions. You know that that is something I am watching more as this year goes on, um, because the best teams, the teams that have the best chance to win it, are teams that are going to be really great emotionally. If you're watching guys play really high emotionally and really low emotionally, where they're not going to be able to to sustain that in in March basketball because this everything's at stake. So every shot that's made, every shot that's missed. So emotional teams don't win in March, but emotionally mature teams have an opportunity to. I I, I like you. I was impressed with how they came out. Um, coming off a big, coming off a, a a hard place to win against an opponent that you know they were fired up to play against. And to represent themselves like that against Oklahoma, right? But, you know, that that's really impressive. And that's why I was like, this is a team I've got to watch a lot more. You know, when you when we talk about Kansas State a lot in the past, you do feel like they're running a little bit on the emotional, towards emotionally empty right now because they've had so many big weeks of playing up and playing well and really um, charged environments. It's going to be really important for them to find their emotional balance or this could be a tough stretch for them if they don't find that. Absolutely. So TCU is a team that we would definitely put into the category of teams playing well and teams that might be on the rise. And the cool thing about college basketball is things could change so quickly, right? Like Texas A&M is a very good example of that. They really struggled during the non-conference portion of play. And all of a sudden they earned a big SEC close road win against Florida to kick off the season and they haven't really looked back since only losing one SEC game in that stretch so coach I'll throw it back over to you like when you look around the country right now is there a team or two in particular that might not be getting the hype or the the notoriety that they should be right now that you think deserves some credit I, I know I have a couple teams that come to mind but how about you I'll give you a couple I think the job that Nate Oates is doing in Alabama it's kind of flying, flying under the radar a little bit. You know, they could have the best player in college basketball. I think Zach, Zach Eddie is the most dominant player. But Alabama could have the very best player in college basketball. You know, when you talk about what Brandon Miller is able to do with the ball in his hands, moving without the ball, it's really, as a as a person who loves basketball, it's exciting to watch. And he's definitely a player that could dominate the month of March. But also what NATO does with his team, they have such an ability to play freely offensively. You know, Brandon Miller's really consistent. They're, they've got a lot of really good players. They've done an amazing job of that. But the ability to let them play with freedom is what makes them dangerous. Um, where they can go and they can beat anybody. Um, I would then go also, I would say Virginia. I love uh, what Tony Bennett's done with that offense through the years. Making some small tweaks, you know, Jalen Gardner on the inside as a, as a combination forward, you know, a guy used primarily in the post at East Carolina learns a system at Virginia a year ago. Now Tony Bennett puts him in such a great position to dominate the game 
And you might look at his numbers and say, Coach, he's averaging, you know, 10, 11, 12 points a game. But the way that Tony Bennett uses him, it allows for their entire team to play free. You know, Reese and those guys get downhill and they can make plays. They've got a really good team. I do think they're flying under the radar some. Um, they've got bursts on offense, and they've got and they've got really really strong def- defenders as always. When you talk about a Tony Bennett coach team, I just love the way he uses their personnel. I think they're far more dangerous than what people are thinking. I agree a hundred percent. And it's interesting with Virginia, right? Because they got some hype in the beginning of the season. They participated in that big uh, four team event in Las Vegas, and they were able to come away with a pair of victories over Baylor and Illinois, two of the better teams in college basketball. And they did take a few losses here and there, but they've really turned it on lately uh, in ACC play. They've actually won their last five in a row in ACC play, including wins against North Carolina and at Wake Forest. So I agree hundred percent. I think if any team in the ACC really stands out as a dangerous one to go deep in the NCAA tournament, I would definitely put Virginia into that category. And Beekman, he's an NBA player, man. The amount of three point shots that he's able to make, it's really impressive. But I also agree what you said about Alabama, like Nate Oates, people forget in only his second year at Alabama, two years ago, he was able to take the Crimson Tide and lead them to an SEC regular season and tournament championship. And they were able to get to the Sweet 16 that year. And Alabama had a lot of talent under Avery Johnson, you know, with Colin Sexton and a lot of other NBA players, but they were never really able to break through that hump. And immediately since Nate Oates has walked into that door, uh, the opposite has happened. They've All they've really done is win. I know they had a little bit of a down year last year, but they were still able to make the NCAA tournament and beat Gonzaga and beat Houston. They beat Baylor as well. Even on his worst days, Nate Oates is still a really good coach. And I agree 100% about Brandon Miller in Alabama. They're definitely probably the most consistent team in college basketball right now. Yeah, and, I, and it's interesting how I feel like they're flying under the radar, I think. You know, we have a lot of these other programs. I think we just don't know about them as much. And so we kind of get really excited about them. And um, But when I watch them play, and I watched them lose early in the year, I thought Brandon Miller, uh, you know, I thought, what an amazing player. You know, he's one of those guys that this won't happen, but if he came back for a second year, you know, he would, he would break a lot of records at, at University of Alabama, but he would be, without a doubt, you know, the, the player of the year coming back and, he would be able to live up to that billing. The way that Nate Oates uses him, um, I think is really special. You know, it'd be really easy for Nate Oates to only use his shooting ability or to only use his driving ability. Nate Oates is putting him in position to dominate games, even if he doesn't score because of how you have to guard him. Um, when you talk about matchups, he's a matchup nightmare for whoever has to play him, and he can just do so much. I think that's a really good point, too, because Alabama had some pretty big, high-profile games early in the season. They actually went into Houston and won, but was what was crazy about that game was Houston had a 15-point lead early, and Brandon Miller didn't even score in, the in the in I believe, the whole game or the first half. He didn't make a field goal in the whole game. He didn't score in the first half, and really, uh, Alabama was still able to find a way to win. And then a few weeks ago against Arkansas on the road, They shut him down in the first half, and he scored 14 points in the second half to lead them to victory. That's the one thing I've really heard about Brandon Miller and why, if I was an NBA team, I would be so interested in drafting him is because it's clear the only thing he really cares about is winning. And a lot of times when you're in this position as one of the best freshmen or players in college basketball and you know there's a pretty good chance you're going to be playing 
in the NBA next year, the fact that you're able to be that unselfish and really prioritize winning, that has to be something that is really appealing to any head coach or GM. Yeah, and I would say, you know, sometimes when a guy has zero points and a half or has a bad game, you got to watch the game. You know, the best teams are not going to let the best player get to their spots. They're going to really do a great job of taking away what you do best. Sometimes we underappreciate that. Um, and that's why I think Nate, NATO's ability to empower the other players, if they're taking him away, Brandon Miller being him, and you empower the other guys to be aggressive and to be able to play their game, and you build a system around where you still have to guard him, Brandon Miller. Well, now those guys are getting downhill. They're making simple plays for each other. You know, it's really like becomes a game of cat and mouse. It's like, when are you going to, when are you going to have to guard Brandon Miller like everybody else on the floor? Because we have other good offensive players. I love their offensive system. I think the way they utilize their personnel is really smart. They're dangerous because of that. Because the one thing I'll tell you this, and I always looked at this in tournament play. Do I have a player on the team that can win me? And it, you know, if you're in a conference tournament, do I have a player on the team that can win me one game? A good player can win you one game in a conference tournament. A great player can win you two games. And then when you get to the NCAA tournament, you know, now you're playing uh, Thursday, Saturday, Friday, Sunday. A guy can win you two games in a weekend, rest up, and then get you two more. So having a dominant player becomes very important. You know, conference tournaments, you're playing them over three or four days, so they're quick turnarounds. But great players can win you two games. And good players can win you one game. They've got a great player. I'll be excited to see if he can win the one or two games in the, in those, in the, when he gets to tournament setting. Absolutely. So one of the two teams actually that Alabama has lost to this season is Gonzaga and Gonzaga. I think this is one of the more crazy underrated stats and streaks in the country that Gonzaga has made it to the last seven sweet 16s of the NCAA tournament, which is interesting because a lot of, uh, slack they'll get from people watching college basketball is, oh, they can't win the big one. But they've had some success in the NCAA tournament, and they took a loss on Thursday night in WCC play against Loyola Marymount. This was actually a home loss, another really good team losing a home game in surprising fashion. And this broke a pretty long streak, over 60-plus consecutive home wins for the Gonzaga Bulldogs. And Gonzaga is another team that's kind of in a similar position to Houston, although I think the WCC continues to improve as a league. You have St. Mary's, who's currently ranked. They won an NCAA tournament game last year. I think Randy Bennett is one of the more underrated coaches in the league. You have BYU playing well. You have Santa Clara playing well, San Francisco. When you look at this Gonzaga team, Coach Christian, it's interesting because they also lost a lot of NBA talent and really good players from the last few years. And even though they still have Drew Timmy, they still have Nolan Hickman, like plenty of really good players. Really since the beginning of the season, it's been clear to me, and this isn't a problem per se, but this Gonzaga team might not be, probably isn't up to the same par that we've seen from the last few years from Gonzaga. So do you think this Gonzaga team is going to be able to turn this around? And when I say turn it around, I use it lightly. They are still 17-4 and four overall. They're going to be probably a top four, top five seed in the NCAA tournament. But you know Gonzaga's fans and their expectations after how good they've been for so long. They finally want to win the big one. And they're sitting at 17-4 and four right now, which is obviously very good, good enough to get you a solid seed in the NCAA tournament. When you watch Gonzaga, how does this team compare to some of their other teams of years past? And what are they really going to have to do to get over the summer? 
Well, I think Gonzaga will come back down to earth a bit. I mean, they're still going to be a dominant team, but they're, they may not be where they were in the last few years. You know, Tommy Lloyd become the head coach of Arizona. You know, all those studs we see running around Arizona, they've been running around in Spokane, Washington, right? So that changes things pretty dramatically. Like, I don't think, the, the, to me, the biggest loss at Gonzaga aren't the guys that went to the NBA. It's losing Tommy Lloyd. Um, the players that he's bringing in there that they're now basically going to compete for, that he's going to have a great chance to get Arizona, that's going to split the talent that Gonzaga was getting 100% of. So that changes things pretty dramatically. Um, I think when I watch them play, I mean, they're, they're dominant how they play. They're, they move the ball so well. They have a great system. Um, they're going to they're gonna still win their league, but it's just going to be different. Um, it's just going to be different how they play, how they're going to perform. Um, you know, the, the other thing that people don't understand is that by Gonzaga being in that league, they've raised the profile of that league. So there's better players in that league. There's probably better players in that league right now per team than there's ever been because the amount of money that Gonzaga's brought into the league over the last 18, 19 years for NCAA tournament wins, the way that stuff gets split up by the league, that gives more resources to the teams in the league. That gives them more ability to charter flights, more ability to recruit more, more ability to go out and do some different things to upgrade their arenas, upgrade their locker rooms. So the strength of that league, Gonzaga deserves 100% of that credit. Um, having Mark Few there, watching them being so dominant, it's made the athletic directors in that league go out and hire really good coaches because you can't afford to have someone that, that can't coach at the level of a Mark Few or hasn't been there before. So you start going on the coaching list in that league, you say, wow, these are some, these are some esteemed coaches, guys that have been to, that have done some amazing things in college basketball. So the credit of the league, 100% goes to Gonzaga. So although they may come down to earth a little bit, they built that league to where it is to where the other teams have had to step their game up to have a chance to compete with them. So you're starting to see some of that in, in, in that league. And that's why their conference tournament is going to be one of the best, I believe, because there are a lot of players and watching individually players. There's a lot of potential NBA players coming out of that league. And it starts with Gonzaga being so dominant and demanding that everyone else have to step their game up. Absolutely. Just a few names that come to mind in terms of coaches like Steve Lav and Lorenzo Romar. These are guys that used to coach at the power five, power six level, and uh, they absolutely have raised uh, that league in a big way. Coach, one other team I wanted to hit on with you, and I mentioned this because you did tweet about them uh, recently and how much success they're having, and that's Rutgers. They had another big win over Penn State last night, winning that game 65-45. to And I think what's so cool about Steve Peichel and what he's done at Rutgers, right, is we know this program has been struggling or had been struggling leading up uh, to when he first got there. And he finally started putting things together around year three, year four. They were supposed to make the – NCAA tournament in 2020, but the rest of that season got canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. They make it back and even win a tournament game in 2021. They made it back last year, but they started to lose some guys, right? Like Ron Harper and Geo Baker. These are guys that did so much for this program. They really helped build it up. Uh, Nigel Johnson as well. Like these were really good players for this Rutgers team. And when they left, I don't think people necessarily expected Rutgers to just fall to the bottom of the Big Ten, but I don't think a lot of people expected Steve Peichel to be able to continue the amount of success that he's had, and it seems like as time goes on, this program is just getting better and better and better. 
They have one of the best home court advantages in all of college basketball. They rarely lose at home. I'm so impressed with Cliff, Cliff Morier. He is an NBA type big man. He just has violent, violent slam dunks uh, in the middle of the floor. He's so hard to guard. And they have enough shot makers on the outside. You love Paul Mel- Mulcahy and the addition of Cam Spencer, bringing him in from the transfer portal. That's a guy that Steve Peichel really did his homework on, considering Rutgers has struggled a little bit recently in, in recent years on the offensive end. But he's a guy that knows how to make a shot or two in the big moments. So I'm just so impressed by this Rutgers team. And I know uh, you are as well. Well, you know, I think Steve Peichel has just done an amazing job every place he's been. Um, he's really highly respected in coaching circles. And we just really respect what he's been able to do. And the job he's done at Rutgers, obviously leading with toughness and physicality is something that he's done every stop he's been able to have. And then being able to have a few skilled guys that can make plays that kind of carry the offensive load. A perfect coach for the for the Big Ten and the, the level of physicality that's required in that league um, is just, just different. And he's just got a great mentality. It's fun watching his teams play. It's fun watching him coach them. It's fun watching him have, have a ton of success. You know, anytime we'd be recruiting, you know, we this, we ran into this a lot at GW, actually. We'd be recruiting against those guys, you know, and I always prided myself on being a guy who really wanted the under-the-radar guy that people weren't recruiting, and they'd be right there with us recruiting the same guys. And, you know, other people above us wouldn't offer in the A-10, and, and they would offer them, and sometimes we won, sometimes they won. But, you know, you knew when you were recruiting, if you're in the same category as, as they were, you're on the right guys. And, and so you, you kind of gain some respect from the road because you recognize who's really working, who's really got an idea of what works for them. And you feel that with Steve Peichel. Um, I don't think he gets enough credit for what he does. You know, a lot of times you get credit because people say the job someone's done at Rutgers, right? Because they traditionally don't have a great uh, tradition. And I feel like that's such a negative way to phrase it because he's done a great job, period. Um, he, if he was at Michigan State, it'd be a great job. If he was at you know, Virginia, it'd be a great job. Like he's just a great coach. Um, and so it didn't matter if he was at Rutgers or wherever coaching on the moon, his teams would be physical. They'd find a way to make plays. And that's a Steve Peichel coach team. Yeah, definitely. And when you watch them, that's the one thing that really stands out to me is their effort. And just knowing that the other team is never going to get any easy buckets, but coach Christian, before I let you go, I'll give you the floor. I know there were a ton of games last night. Uh, And also one other thing I I wanted to run by you actually. So there's been a little bit of controversy in the ACC over the course of the last two nights, Duke plays Virginia tech on Monday. It was a heck of a game back and forth, a ton of lead changes, Virginia tech actually takes the lead in the final 10 seconds. Uh, Kid hits a shot. He's going crazy, celebrating, and he accidentally uh, hits Kyle Filipowski. He had no idea that he was going to be there, but a lot of people wanted that to be a flagrant one. The rest let it go. Virginia Tech gets the win last uh, Monday night. Then last night, North Carolina is at the Carrier Dome playing Syracuse. Judah Mintz goes in for a layup to try and tie the game in the final 10 seconds, but he uh, had an inadvertent elbow catch R.J. Davis, who went down, and the refs called it a flagrant one, and that's really what ended up winning North Carolina the game. Uh, When you're a coach on the sideline in a situation like that where you watch the replay and you know if this is called – if this happens any time in the first 38 minutes of the game, it's probably going to be a flagrant foul. But in the biggest moment, in the biggest game, it's never ideal – to have a game determined based on a flagrant foul that wasn't even intentional. And I think what's so difficult here is if you look at the ruling of a flagrant one, like it's usually 
in, uh, unintentional. It's by accident. It, it's the flagrant two where it looks like, okay, maybe you did it on purpose and that's when you're going to get ejected. But when you have a, a call like that in the final 10 seconds of a game where it's such a gray area, like it could go either way. Like, how do you approach that as a head coach? I don't know if you've ever had a loss like that where you lose because of just kind of a 50-50 call that could go either way, but you just never really want a game being determined because of a flagrant foul. Like, if that happens to a team, like, how do you react to that? How do you get them in a better mindset after losing a game in such heartbreaking fashion? Yeah, I think, you know, one I would say, I, I thought they were both flagrant ones. Um, one's... I mean, both are accidental. Um, you know, I know one is in celebrate was in celebration. Judah Mences was the one for Syracuse on the you know reaching of his top. It was a charge. First of all, it was a charge anyway. Um, they called a charge on the floor. It was definitely a charge. Um, and we would always kind of instruct our, our guys. And I think they must have changed this rule the last two years or so. But there was a rule, you know, my first couple of years at GW, probably three years ago, where if there's any contact above the neck or above the shoulders with an elbow, whatever was an automatic foul. And maybe they backed off of that some. But in that Judamentis situation where he elbows a guy trying to reach over the top, that would have definitely been a flagrant one automatically two years ago. So they must have tweaked the rules just a little bit to not take to, to change that a bit. So I mean, essentially what I would always teach our guys at the very beginning of the year, any contact above the shoulders, expect a flagrant one. Um, you know, sometimes life isn't fair. <laughs> So if he actually he actually punched um, by, um, Kyle in the in, in the throat, and if they would have called that a flagrant one, it's sometimes just life isn't fair. I mean, you didn't intend to do that, but that's the those are the rules of it. Um, I mean, I, I was pretty lenient with with the refs on stuff like that because, you know, you can't we can't have these guys out here judging intent, right? I mean, I yeah. think once once they get out here, start judging intent, it becomes really dangerous. Um, because we just need to be able to go back to our teams and say what the rules are and intent can, is different for each person. Right. That's something actually about the new flopping rule that I'm not a fan of. I think it really puts the refs in kind of a tough spot because they really have to determine like on a play that might have some contact. And if you have contact, you're taught, right? Like to maybe just go down if it looks like reasonable enough, like it almost puts the refs in a tough spot to really judge like, okay, was this a flop or not? And now, like, there's no warning. It's just a two-shot technical, which you know how important those points yeah. could be in a close game. So I think that, along with the new flopping rule, it kind of puts the refs in a little bit of a tough spot at times. Yeah, I was actually the, – the day that I got fired from GW, I was actually – the day I got forced into my sabbatical for the year at GW, I was actually on the phone with our head of officials uh, about this, about the about flopping and the call of flopping. Um, because in the in the rule book, there is no distinction about – really like what a flop is, right? Like if, if I'm taking a catch and shoot jumper or ball coming from the inside out and I'm my, I'm stationary as a shooter, it's really easy for a referee to see if I kick my legs out, if I flop, it's really easy for someone to see that because ideally the, the player's going up and down, but when the players are moving, the bodies are moving. It's really hard to see what a flop is and what it isn't. And I think, and, and there's no distinction between that in the game. The flop where I'm kicking my legs out, um, the flop where I'm faking the charge, they're all the same category. And I think they're different. Um, you know, if I'm shooting the ball, curling to the basket with momentum trying to get to forward, 
I may jump in one position, but I'm going to need to finish because of body mechanics closer to the basket. So I'm going to jump forward because naturally I'm trying to gain momentum to go to the basket. So these kind of flops or kicking your leg fouls, there's no distinction between the difference. And I think those are very different plays. Um, and I think most people would agree that they're very different. But to this point, there is no there is no distinction in the rule book. You can say the same thing with a with a flop on a foul, or you know when you're dribbling and a guy throws his head back. Um, and I think we just got to continue to advance the rules so the referees know what to look at. And I think we've done a good job of that through the years. It's a hard game. Like what people don't understand, the best players know how to draw fouls. So you're trying to figure out like how can you allow those players to still play with freedom but allow them to play the game in an honest way that doesn't just fool everyone. And basketball is a game where you're taught to try to get away with what you can get away with, right? I mean, if I go to one gym, they may call this. If I go to another gym, they may not. So we say in the first five minutes, learn how they're calling the game. So you're teaching the players to constantly be able to adjust. So I think it's, it's a bigger challenge than what people think. Um, I feel, you know, I think, I think those are both flagrant ones. Um, I would like to see both of them called flagrant ones. Um, but, you know, if you give the refs the ability to make a decision on that, and they did, it can go either way. And I think that's dangerous. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good point about the refs. Like, either way, like, there, there. I don't think there were – I guess you could have – the right call was probably, yeah, making it a flagrant one. But I also understand, like, in their position, not wanting the game to just come down to a call like that. So it's really a gray area, and I definitely agree. It's something – that uh, needs to be adjusted going forward. But Coach Kristen, I wanted to say thank you so much for joining me. Always a great time having you on the show. And uh, before you leave, if there are any other quick uh, triggers you want to get to, no problem. But thank you so much again for joining me. No, it's great to be here. And I just think this this weekend's going to be some great games. So I'm looking forward to getting back with you next week. Next week. Absolutely. Big 12 SEC Challenge will be taking place on Saturday. Kentucky, Kansas, Texas, Tennessee, Baylor, Arkansas. Going to be some really fascinating matchups. But I wanted to thank everyone for listening to another episode of the College Hoops Daily Podcast. We'll talk to you guys soon.